We've been fighting a long time. We have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Hey everybody, welcome back to another edition of How the Faith Came to the United States of America. Yes, that was Tupac leading us into with California love because we're talking about California. And this is coming from the Catholic Encyclopedia on newlandnet.org. The origin of the name California has been some of conjecture, but certain it is that at the end of the 16th century, it was applied to all the territory claimed by the Spanish crown bordering on the Pacific Ocean and laying north of Cape San Lucas. In a much later day, it came to designate under the familiar phrase, the two Californias. The territory now included the state of California and the peninsula of Lower California. After Florida, California is the oldest name of any of the United States. The land was discovered by the Spaniards Lower California by Cortez, who visited the peninsula in 1533, and Alta, or Upper California, by Cabrillo in 1542. Lower California had been evangelized by the Jesuits, who established 18 missions between 1697 and 1767. Upon the expulsion of the Jesuits in the latter year, the care of the missions and conversion of the Indians in the Spanish settlements were entrusted to the Franciscans. To them, therefore, belongs the honor of founding the great mission system of Cal California proper. The leader of this gigantic work was the renowned Father Juniper Serra, and his first settlement in California was the mission of San Diego, which he established in July 1769. San Francisco was founded in 1776. For 15 years, the saintly man labored in California with apostolic zeal, and at the time of his death in 1784, he established nine missions between San Diego and San Francisco. The total number of missions founded in California by the Franciscans was 21, and they extended from Sonoma in the north to San Diego in the south. Prominent among them were Santa Clara, San Luis, Obispo, Santa Barbara, and San Juan Capistrano. The missions were all established under the sovereignty of the King of Spain. Each mission had its own church a residence for the fathers, a presidio or military guard, and shops and workrooms for the Indians who, besides receiving instruction for the faith or in the faith, were taught the usual arts of civilization. Each mission was established in conjunction with the Spanish settlement under a civil governor, and during this period the immigration was almost exclusively Spanish or Mexican. In 1822, California ceased 
to be a Spanish colony became part of the territory of Mexico. From that date begins the decline of the missions. The policy of the government became one of annoyance, interference, and aggression. Finally, in 1834, began the secularization of the missions, which was in fact their downright confiscation. The fathers were deprived of their lands and buildings, and the Indians freed from the benevolent government of the friars. California became known to the world through Hernando Cortes, the conqueror of Mexico, who probably first applied the name. It was divided into Lower or Old California and Upper California. The first missionaries were the Franciscans, who, under the leadership of Martin de la Corona, one of the Twelve Apostles of Mexico, on the 3rd of May, 1535, landed with Cortes in Santa Cruz Bay, near what is now La Paz, on the lower eastern coast of the peninsula. After a year of extreme privations, due to the sterility of the soil, the undertaking, which had cost the famous conqueror $300,000, had to be abandoned. The Friars Minor made another effort to establish missions among the natives, when in 1596, Sebastian Vizcaino set out to found a colony in California. The missionaries were Diego de Perdoma, Bernardino de Zuminio, Antonio Tello, Nicolas de Arabia, and a lay brother Cristobal Lopez. Hunger and hostility of the savages, who proved to be the lowest plane of humanity, put an end to the venture before the close of the year. In 1683, the Jesuit fathers Eusebius Kuhn, better known as Kino, and Pedro Matias Goni, with Fra Jose Gijoso of the Order of St. John of God, accompanying Admiral Isidio Tondo y Antillion, landed somewhat north of La Paz for the purpose of converting the natives and establishing a Spanish colony. After two years, as many as 400 Indians attended the catechetical instructions. Owing to the precarious state of the enterprise, the missionaries administered baptism only to those neophytes who are found in danger of death. For want of supplies and after the expenditure of $225,000 of part of the government, the Spaniards once more withdrew in September 1685, despite the protests of the religious and the sorrow of the catechumens. Anxious to secure a foothold in the territory lest a foreign power take possession, but having learned the experience that the military could not succeed, the Spanish government, through the Viceroy, invited the Society of Jesus to establish and undertake a conquest of the settlement of the country. Urged by Fathers Quino and Salvatore, the superiors of the Society at length accepted the charge. Thereupon, the Viceroy Matazama, on the 5th of February 1697, formally authorized the Society of Jesus to establish missions in California on the condition that the Royal Treasury not be expected to pay any expenses incurred without order of the king, and that possession of the territory be taken in the name of the king of Spain. In turn, the Jesuits were to enjoy the privilege of enlisting soldiers to act as guards on the, for the missions at the expense of the society, and at time of war, these soldiers were to be considered on the same footing with those of a regular army. The Jesuits were to have absolutely absolute authority on the peninsula in temporal as well as spiritual affairs, and were empowered to choose men suitable for the administration of justice. Father Juan Marie Sabateri was appointed superior of the California missions. He had once began to collect funds to place the undertaking on a firm basis. It would require $10,000, he thought, to furnish a revenue of $500 a year to maintain one priest at each mission. The Reverend Juan Caballero of 
Quartero donated $20,000 for two missions, and the Confraternity of Our Lady of Sorrows in the City of Mexico supplied $10,000 for the founding and maintaining of a third establishment. This was the beginning of the celebrated Pious Fund of California. The first and principal mission of Lower California was to establish a league from the shore and placed under the patronage of Our Lady of Loreto. The necessary buildings were hastily constructed and the zealous Jesuit assembled the neighboring Indians. He first endeavored to learn their language and meanwhile, through signs, tried to make them understand his object and the most necessary truths of religion. Father Francisco Maria Piccolo soon followed him and assisted especially in teaching the little ones. Father Juan de Egarte, who had resigned the precursorship, followed in 1700. Next to Salvateria, this religious was the most noted of the early Californian missionaries. It was he who introduced agriculture and stock raising at the second mission in San Francisco Xavier for the purpose of making the missions self-supporting. He succeeded to some extent, but the barrenness of the soil, the lack of water, except that two or three other establishments prevented the system from being general on the peninsula. Indeed, the scarcity of water and arable land brought the mission establishments to the verge of abandonment several times, even before the death of Salvateria, which occurred in Guadalajara in 1717. It was also the energetic Agarte who built the large ship in California, the first large ship in California of native timber and made a voyage of exploration to the mouth of the Colorado River in 1712. Though the missionaries devoted themselves heart and soul to their task, the work of conversion proved truly disheartening inasmuch as polygamy, sorcery, and the vilest habits prevailed among the lower Californians to a degree of not known elsewhere. If we add to this the total indifference of the natives who possessed no religious ideas whatever, the freaking epidemics and almost constant wars which destroyed the labors of years and caused desertions of several missions. It becomes plain that only the most zealous and ascetic men could have succeeded as well as these missionaries did. Pagan hatred frequently attacked the isolated religious and in October 1734 brought about the violent death of two priests. These were Father Lorenzo Carranzo of Mission Santiago and Nicholas Tamarel of Mission San Jose de, del Cabo of the southern part of the peninsula, both of whom were killed with arrows and clubs, after which the bodies were frightfully mutilated. Two other religious, warned in time, barely escaped with their lives. Notwithstanding all the drawbacks and obstacles to which must be added the animosity of the pearl fishers and their friends in, in Mexico, besides the want of every convenience of life, the Jesuits in time established a chain of mission which extended from Cape San Lucas to the 31st degree of latitude. These missions and the year of their establishment beginning from the north to south were San Jose de Cabo, 1730, Santiago de la Corras, 1721, San Juan de Ligny, 1705, Nuestra Señora de Dolores del Sol, 1721, Santa Rosa or Torres Santos, 1733, San Luis Gonzaga, 1737, San Francisco Xavier, 1699, Nuestra Señora de Loreto, 1697, San Jose de Camundi, 1708, Purísima Concepción de Cadamogomo, 1718, 
Santa Rosalia de Molege, 1705, Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe, 1720, San Ignacio, 1728, Santa Gertrudis, 1728, San Francisco de Borgia, 1729, and Santa Maria de Los Angeles, 1766. Only 14 of these missions existed in 1767. Epidemics had carried off the neophyte settler establishments so that they had to be abandoned. No statistics exist from which the success of the Jesuit missionaries' labors can be est estimated because so, no such mineral reports were required by the government as were demanded at other periods. Some of the missionaries were rather enthusiastic in describing the reception given to the gospel by the natives in the receptive localities, but owing to the unfavorable conditions, according to the Jesuit father, John Jacob Begart, who had toiled for 17 years at one of the missions, the religious and moral impression was nowhere very deep or lasting. Like other Jesuit historians, he describes the Indians as indolent to the last degree, dull, cruel, treacherous, indifferent, and addicted to the lowest vices, from which it was very difficult, ex exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, to wean them on account of the little control which the missionaries could exercise over the neophytes. Owing to the sterility of the soil and lack of water for irrigation, it was impossible except for a few places to feed and clothe a large number of people at the missions and thus keep them under the watch eye of the missionaries. After a course of instruction, more or less long during a period, they, fed, they were fed the missionary establishments. The neophytes were permitted to return to their haunts in order to search for food in the mountains and had been their custom from time immemorial. A chief and catechist would, indeed, exercise some kind of supervision over the concerts and report grievous transgressions to the missionary, but the neophytes were left to themselves, save when, they, when the turn came for each particular village to repair for a week for the mission to examine the catechism and for further instruction, during which week the fathers had to maintain them. Nevertheless, the missionaries succeeded in opening the gates of heaven to many thousands of souls who, but for the unselfish efforts of the religious, would not have learned even the existence of God. During the 60 years that the Jesuits were permitted to labor among the natives of California, 56 members of the Society of Jesus came to the peninsula, of whom 16, two as martyrs, died at their post. Fifteen priests and one lay brother survived the hardships, only to be subjected to, enforce, uh, to enforcement of brutal decree launched against the Society of Jesus by King Carlos III of Spain. The Jesuits of Lower California were placed on board a ship in February 1768 and brought to Mexico, whence, with the Mexican religious, those who outlived the cruelties inflicted on, one, on the way thither were shipped to Europe. The missions, meanwhile, were left in charge of the military officers called commissionados for a year mismanaged the rights of the Indians. Immediately after the decree of expulsion had been published at the capital of Mexico in January, July 1767, Viceroy de Croix requested Franciscans of the Apostolic Missionary College of San Fernando and the city of Mexico to accept the missions of California. Their superiors acquiesced reluctantly for they were not in position to furnish the number of missionaries. To be able to comply with the demand, Five flourishing Indian missions in the Sierra Garda were surrendered to the Archbishop of Mexico. Fifteen volunteer, volunteer friars, led by the famous Juniper Serra, finally arrived in Loretto on Good Friday, the 1st of April, 1768, and were at once assigned to deserted missions. They were given charge of the spiritual affairs only, 
To the amazement of the Indians who had been accustomed to receiving food, clothing, and presents, as well as religious instructions from their spiritual guides. When, however, the Inspector General Don Jose Galvez arrived in July 1768 with almost unlimited power to remedy the irregularities brought on by the sudden change and discovered from personal observation how the Comisados had squandered the mission property, he at once turned it over to the Franciscans who, thereafter could manage the missions as freely as the Jesuits had done. The friars continued the system of their predecessors and sought, though in vain at various places, to repair the damage wrought during the misrule of the secular officials. A year after their arrival, another mission was founded north of Santa Maria de Valicata under the patronage of San Fernando. The fathers were about to establish five additional missions in obedience to the orders of the viceroy who had already named the patron saints when the hostility of Governor Bari frustrated the plan. From a report, the only general one we have concerning Lower Mexico during the mission period, which Father Francisco Palau, then superior or presidente of the mission sent to Mexico, we learned that the Franciscans from April 1768 to September 1771 baptized 1,731 persons, nearly all Indians. During the same period, they, they blessed 787 marriages and buried 2,165 dead. As early as 1768, the Dominican Vicar General, Father Juan Pedro de Enarte, sought permission from the king to found missions in Lower California and succeeded in obtaining a royal decree to the effect on the 8th of April, 1770. But the Franciscan College of San Fernando deemed the territory too sparsely populated for two different missionary bands offered to cede the whole peninsula to the Dominican order. An agree agreement between Father Rafael Verger, the guardian of the college, and Father Juan Pedro de Arnarte, the Vicar General of Dominicans, was accordingly drawn up on the 7th of April, 1772, and approved by the Viceroy Bucardi on the 12th of May, 1772. Nine Dominican fathers and one lay brother landed at Loreto on the 14th of October, 1772, but refused to accept control of the missions until their superior father in Arte should arrive. The latter sometime after suffered shipwreck and was drowned in the Gulf of California. Father Vicente Mora was then appointed superior, whereupon Father Francisco Palau began the former transfer at Loreto in May 1773 and repeated the ceremony at each mission as he traveled north on the way to Upper California. 39 Friars Minor had been active on the peninsula during the five years and five months of Franciscan rule. Four of them died. Ten of them transferred to Upper California, where Father Juniper Serra had begun to open a much larger field for his brethren and the remainder returned to the mother house. During their long incumbency, which lasted about the year 1840, the Dominicans established the following new missions between San Fernando de Vallecata and San Diego. Rosario in 1774, Santo Domingo 1775, San Vicente Ferrar 1780, San Miguel 1787, Santo Tomas 1791, San Pedro Martir 1794, and Santa Catarina Martir 1797. Little is on record about the activities of these friars. As far as known, down to the year 1870, Dominicans came to the peninsula. How many died at their missions or how many died after that year is impossible to say. The missions were finally secularized by the Mexican government in 1834. The management of the land stock and temporalities was taken 
from the missionaries and turned over to the higher government with the same result that was experienced after the departure of the Jesuits. The Indians greatly disappeared and the mission decayed, so much so that the government report in 1856 declared the missions to be ruined and gave the Indian population the whole of the peninsula as only 1,938 souls. Don Jose de Gavez, the Inspector General, was sent to Lure, California not merely for the purposes of correcting abuses. He had already been directed to secure, secure for the Crown of Spain the whole northwest coast as far as it had been discovered and explored by Juan Rodriguez Cabillo in 1542 and by Sebastian Vizcaino in 1602-1603. The Russians had often visited that territory with a view, Spain believed, of taking possession which would have endangered the lucrative Philippine trade. To prevent any foreign power from acquiring the country, which Spain claimed by right of discovery, the Spanish king resolved to found missions among the natives and to erect forts or presidios for their protection. Galvez consulted Father Juniper Serra, then superior of the Peninsula Missions, who enthusiastically agreed to the plan. Two ships, the San Carlos and San Antonio, were equipped and weighted with provisions, agricultural implements, and church goods. The San Carlos sailed for the port of San Diego from La Paz in January 1769, and San Antonio departed from Cape San Lucas in February. The latter ship, having aboard the Franciscan fire, reached the port on the 11th of April. The San Carlos, also bringing a fire, and with the crew suffering from scurvy, arrived on the 29th of April. Meanwhile, Galvez also sent out two land expeditions for the same port. The first under Captain Rivera arrived in San Diego on the 14th of May. The other under Governor Portola with Father Sarah came up 1st July 1769. By order of the Inspector General, all the missions along the routes contributed church, church goods, provisions, and livestock according to their means for the benefit of the new establishments of the North. San Diego had been discovered by Cabrillo and named San Miguel for the Archangel. He had once began to collect funds to place under the appellation San Diego was given by Vizcaino, who also named the bay farther north Monterey. It was at this bay that the Presidio or fort was to be located. Governor Portola therefore set out by land to find it, but failed and instead discovered the present San Francisco Bay on 1st November 1769. Meanwhile, Father Serra founded on 16 July 1769, the first of the chain missions, which extended from San Diego to Simona, a distance of about 600 miles. The second expedition by land and another by sea at last reached the port of Monterey in May 1770. Thereafter, it was the headquarters for the governor as well as the presidente of the missions. The conditions in Upper California were much more favorable to the system under which it was intended to convert and civilize the natives and the latter were found less dull and brutish than those of the peninsula. The Indians about San Diego, however, stubbornly resisted the gospel even by force of arms, so that prior to April 1779, a full year after the appearance of the first missionary, Father Sarah and his companions, with all their kindness, persuasiveness, and presence, did not succeed at gaining one single soul, a fact which made the historian Bancroft exclaim, quote, in the missionary annals of Northwest, there is no other instance where paganism remains stubborn so long. When a significant number of religious had arrived, Father Sarah, in compliance with the rules of Apostolic College, which forbade a friar to live alone, placed two fathers at each mission. 
To these, the governor assigned the guard of five or six soldiers under the corporal for the erection of a temporary church and other structures at each mission and for the purchase of agricultural implements and church goods. The government, out of the revenues of pious funds, paid to the pure curator of the Franciscan College in Mexico a sum of $1,000. Each missionary was allowed an annual stipend of $400. The money was likewise paid to the pure curator who would purchase the articles designated by the missionaries. Money was never sent to the missionaries in California. When a site had been selected for a mission, the temporary buildings were constructed. As soon as practical permanent structures took their place and were built of adobe or sunburnt brick, or in a few cases of stone, generally from uh, in a form of a square, the church was located usually in one corner and adjoining this stood the quarters of the missionaries to which women or girls had no admittance. Then followed the rooms to the attendants and cooks who were the Indian youth selected from among the converts. The sides and rear of the mission square enclosing a courtyard called the Pacio contained the shops, storerooms, stables, and apartments for the young women. The last named part of the mission was, was called the nunnery, and the inmates went by the name of nuns, though, of course, they were not nuns in reality. This was an important and necessary institution of the mission systems and due to the carnal propensities of the Indians. According to the arrangement, girls 12 years of age and more and younger girls who had lost both parents made their home at the mission in the charge of the trustworthy matron where they lived much like the girls in an orphanage or boarding school. During the day, when not occupied at work by their shops, they were permitted to visit their parents in the neophyte village, but at night they had to rest in the mission building under the eyes of the matron. Young men too, though, no, though not kept so strictly, had their quarters in another section of the mission buildings in charge of the missionary. When a young man wished to marry, he approached the missionary who would direct him to make a selection. And if the girl consented, the pair would marry with solemn ceremonies at mass under the bans that had been published. A hut in the village was then assigned where they lived, subject to regulations of the community. Besides this, though extreme kindness, the natives were won by means of presents in the shape of food, clothing, and trinkets, of which the Indians were very fond. The principal points of Christian faith were explained in the simplest manner possible through interpreters at first and later on in their own Spanish languages by the missionary. Insomuch as the Indians in every mission had a different language and frequently several dialects were spoken among the neophytes of a single mission, it was an exceedingly burdensome task for a missionary to make himself understood by all of the native idiom. Nonetheless, some of the fathers became expert linguists and some of them composed vocabularies which are still extant. To ensure regular attendance and, the, and to prevent backsliding, the Indians were induced to leave their desert and mountain hovels and make their home in the missionaries. For those that came, separate huts were erected in more or less regular order. Once baptized, neophytes were not permitted to leave the mission for the purpose of going back to their pagan homes for any length of time without permission of the missionary. The license would extend over two to three weeks for the men only, in a mission village under the shadow of the church, the neophyte families dwelt with their children except for the meritable girls who had taken up their quarters at the mission proper. Morning and evening prayers were said in common at the church and all attended mass after which was made breakfast followed by a few hours of labor. The noonday meal was taken together whereupon in the hot season there would be a rest more or less followed by work until the angelus when supper was taken. The evening was devoted to all kinds of amusements consisting of music and play. The Spanish dance was general. Every mission had its band. 
Thus, the inventory of 1835, the following musical instruments in use in Mission Santa Barbara was typical of all. Four flutes, three clarinets, two horns and trumpets, two bass violas, one chinesco, one bass drum, two kettle drums, 16 violins, four new violins, and three triangles. These were uniforms for all the members of the land. The Indians also did the singing at high mass and other occasions. While the missionaries exercised independent control, which was the case at the end of 1834, the Neophyte community was like one great family, at the head of which stood the Padre, under which title of the missionaries was universally known. To him, the Indians looked for everything concerning their bodies as well as their souls. He was their guide and protector, nor would they ever have suffered had not the beneficent Spanish laws been replaced by the selflessness and cupidity of the Mexican and California politicians who did away with the mission system, which the well-known non-Catholic writer Charles Loomis declares, quote, was the most just, humane, and equitable system ever devised for treatment of aboriginal people, unquote. Peace and contentment reigned to such a degree that the Protestant historian Alexander Forbes, who lived in California at the time, testifies that the best and most unequivocal proof of good conduct that a father is to be found in the unbounded affection and emotion invariably shown towards them by their Indian subjects. They venerated them not merely as friends and fathers, but with a degree of devotion, approach, and adoration. Each great mission family was comprised of many hundred, sometimes two or three hundred natives, good, bad, and indifferent. Excesses were necessary to be expected, especially in the neighborhood of white people. To prevent disorders, the missionaries, with the approval of the visceral government, drew up what may be called police regulations for the transgressions of which various punishments were meted out, of a kind which would impress the dull and rude nature of the Indians. The missionary dictated the punishment which is ever tempered with mercy. When simple reproof availed nothing, the whip was applied. This was the only correction, besides fasting, which affected the lower class natives of the Pacific coast. This manner of punishment had been introduced by the Jesuit founder of the Lower California Missions, Father Juan Maria Salvatierra, about 70 years before, as the only means to make the rude creatures grasp the wickedness of a deed. The number of lashes to be administered was governed by law, and might never exceed 25 for one offense, nor more than once a day. The chastisement was not applied by the missionary, but by an Indian chief or other native official, nor was it so readily afflicted as ignorant writers would have the world believe. The stories of cruelty prevalent among closet historians were either manufactured or exaggerated out of all resemblance of the, to the truth by the enemies of the friars, because the latter stood between white cupidity and Indian helplessness. At times, the culprit would be locked up but that was penalty he courted, as it relieved him from work for which the Indian had an innate aversion. If the offense was of a serious nature or a crime against the nature of civil laws, the delinquent had to be turned over to the military authorities, inasmuch as the missionary considered himself as regards neophytes and loco parentes, and was so recognized by Spanish law he acted in that capacity. It was this fatherly treatment which gained for him the veneration of the converts which approached adoration. Throughout the mission period, the missionaries aimed at making their establishment self-supporting with a view of independence of government assistance and to wean the natives from insolence so that they may adapt civilized ways and learn to maintain themselves by the fruit of their labor. The friars succeeded so well that from the year 1811, when all government aid ceased, 
as well for the missions as for the soldiers on account of the revolutionary situation in Mexico, the California establishments maintained not only for themselves, but also the whole military and civil government on the coast down to the end of 1834 when the Franciscans were deprived of control. From the beginning of the mission, the fathers insisted that all should work according to their capacity, either on the farm or in the workshops during six to seven hours a day. The product was stored in the granaries or ware rooms for the benefit of the community. It was their endeavor to raise or manufacture everything consumed or used by the Indians. For this reason, much of the allowance of the friars was invested in agriculture implements or mechanical tools. And it was for this reason, too, that the missions were located where there was sufficient arable land and enough water to irrigate the soil. In this way, thousands of acres of land were brought under cultivation by the natives directed by the missionaries who themselves, for the sake of example, never disdained to labor like the Indians. The official records show that in the 21 missions of Upper California from the year 1770 to the end of 1831, when the general reports ceased, there were harvested in round numbers 2,200,000 bushels of wheat, 600,000 bushels of barley, 850,000 bushels of corn, 160,000 bushels of beans, and 100,000 bushels of peas and lentils. Not to mention garden vegetables, grapes, olives, and various fruits for which no reports were required. It must be remembered that before the arrival of Franciscans, the natives raised absolutely nothing but subsisted, subsisted on whatever the earth provided spontaneously. Example, acorns, seeds, berries in the season, fish near the coast, or when there was nothing else, anything that crept on the surface of the land. All the grains now raised, all the fruits, such as apples, oranges, peaches, pears, plums, prunes, lemons, grapes, pomegranates, olives, nuts, etc., were introduced by the missionaries. To irrigate the land, long ditches had often to be constructed, some of which were of solid masonry. The one which brought the water down from Mission San Diego was of stone and cement that ran along the riverside over a distance of six miles, beginning at the dams made of brick of stone. Much livestock was raised not only for the purpose of attaining meat, but also for wool, leather, and tallow, and for cultivating the land. Thus, the missions, in the height of their prosperity, owned together 232,000 head of cattle, 268,000 sheep, 34,000 horses, 3,500 mules or burros, 8,300 goats, and 3,400 swine. These figures are official, though quite different from the encounter to the works of writers on California. All, all these various kinds of animals were brought up from Mexico. It required a great many Indians to guard the herds and flocks. And this occupation created a class of horsemen scarcely surpassed anywhere. In addition, as almost everything else was raised or manufactured at the missions except sugar and chocolate, which then served as a common beverage in place of coffee and tea, most of the trades were practiced among the Indians under the direction of the friars. A special United States report from 1852 tells us, which is evident from the annual mission accounts that the Franciscans had turned the naked savages into masons, carpenters, plasterers, soap makers, tanners, shoemakers, blacksmiths, millers, bakers, cooks, bricks makers, carters, and cart makers, weavers and spinners, sandlers, shepherds, agriculturalists, herdsmen, and vitigers. In a word, they filled all the laborers' occupations known to civilized society. Nor was the secular education, so-called, 
altogether neglected. But as the Indians were averse to book learning and school books and writing material had to be brought from Mexico on the backs of mules, causing them to be very expensive, and is as much as competent schoolmasters were scarce, the missionaries had to devote their spare time to teaching, reading, writing, and little arithmetic to those boys who evinced any inclination for these branches. Some of the men who later become more most prominent in California politics acquired these necessary arts of civilization from the friars. It was Mexican independence of Spain that put an end to the prosperity of the missions and the happiness of their inmates. With the advent of the first governor under the Mexican flag, began the decay of the homes of peace in nearly 30,000 neophytes. In 1835, secularization complete, completed the ruin. According to the intent of the Spanish laws, which always recognized the Indian's right to his land, secularization meant nothing more than the turning over of the spiritual affairs of the mission from the respective religious order to the bishop of the diocese. Secularization, as practiced by the Mexicans and Californians, was the turning over of a mission or Indian property to the control of higher commissioners appointed by the governor without regard to the wishes of the rightful owners, the Indians, placing the missionary on a level with the secular priest and leaving it optional to the Indians whether they would practice their religion or not. This kind of secularization, which was disguised confiscation, encountered a fierce opposition to the Franciscans because the friars insisted that the land and all it produced along with the livestock and buildings belonged to the Indians and must be held sacred to the rightful owners. That the neophytes were incapable of managing their property and therefore it should be left in charge of those who, with the aid of natives, had accumulated its wealth without salary or compensation for the benefit of those same Indians, inasmuch as the hired officials were both incompetent and unworthy of trust because they were not looking for the welfare or the, of the rightful owners, but only aimed at enriching themselves. As no court existed to which appeal could be made, the friars were powerless to secure the rights of their wards. The result was similar to that experience in Lower California. The Indians gradually disappeared. The mission property was squandered. The mission buildings given over to destruction. The missionaries, one by one, died amid the few faithful who shared the property of the beloved Padre. And the, and the land once cultivated by the neophytes passed in the hands of the greedy. Notwithstanding the many drawbacks, the opposition, and the scandalous ex example among the military and white settlers, the missionaries met with extraordinary spiritual success. Down to the year 1845, when but few friars and Indians survived, the fathers had baptized, according to the records, 99,000 persons, of whom possibly 9,000 were not Indians. They had blessed 28,000 marriages, of which possibly 1,000 were not Indians, and they had buried 74,000 dead, 4,000 of whom were not probably not Indians. The largest number of neophytes harbored, fed, clothed, and instructed at all the missions at one time were nearly 30,000. 146 friars minor, all priests, and mostly Spaniards by birth, labored in California from 1769 to 1845. 67 died at their post, two as martyrs, and the remainder retired to their mother homes on account of illness or the expiration of their 10 years of service. The missions from south to north with the date of founding were as follows. San Diego, 16 July, 1769. San Luis Rey, 13 July, 1798. San Juan Capistrano, 1 November, 1776. San Gabriel, 8 September, 1771. San Fernando, 8 September, 1797. San Buenaventura, 31 March 8, 1782. Santa Barbara, 4 December, 1786. 
Santa Ines, 17 September, 1804. Purisima Concepcion, 8 December, 1787. San Luis Obispo, 1, 1 September, 1772. San Miguel, 25 July, 1797. San Antonio de Padilla, 14 July, 1771. Soledad, 9 October, 1791. San Carlos, 3 June, 1770. Santa Cruz, 29 September, 1791. San Juan Bautista, 24 June, 1797. Santa Clara, 12 July, 1777. San Jose, 11 June, 1797. San Francisco, 9 October, 1776. He at once began to collect funds to place under San Rafael, 14 December, 1817. San Francisco, Solano, 4 July, 1823. From the Popular History of the Catholic Church in the United States by John O'Kane Murray, pages 78 on California. The Catholic missionary transversed the soil of California two centuries and a half before the greedy gold hunter directed his steps towards it. To him, the salvation of a single soul was more precious than all the gold that enriched the lofty hills and beautiful valleys. There in 1601, a band of Franciscans celebrated the first Mass on a rustic altar beneath the spreading branches of a time-honored oak. This is from the history of the Catholic missions, that part. This may be considered the natal day of the California mission. Father Piccola, one of the early Jesuit missionaries, appealed, appeared to be well aware of the rich mines of this favored region. Writing to the government of Mexico in 1702, he says, quote, I have no doubt that this most valuable mines might be discovered in many places where they sought for. This country is under the same physical influences as Sonora, Sonora and Chinola, which are so richly veined with the precious metals. But while other missionaries may have been acquainted with California, the real apostle of that famous state was Father Juniper Serra, an Italian Franciscan. With three other priests of the same order, he formed part of the expedition of Galvez in 1769. The object of Galvez is clearly stated in the first article of the instructions which he issued for the guidance of all who accompanied him. It is worded as follows, quote, The first object of this expedition is to establish a Catholic religion among the numerous heathen people submerged in the darkness of paganism and to extend the dominion of our Lord, the King of Spain. The expedition left La Paz in Lower California and after some sailing and 46 days of traveling by land, it reached the port of the present city of San Diego. Here, Father Serra established his first mission. The outposts of Christianity rapidly grew in numbers and extent. In 1771, the lovely valleys of Monterey resounded as they never had before. There, the Feast of Corpus Christi was celebrated with a pomp such as the wilderness had never seen. Twelve priests joined in sacred procession to honor the real presence which is centered in Catholic faith and worship. By thousands, the Indians embraced the faith. They were taught the arts of civilized life and soon a flourishing Christian country existed on the shores of the great ocean of the West. Thus, Catholicism was a pioneer in the Pacific states, as it was those bordering on the Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico and on the Great Lakes and the Mississippi. At the very time of the Fathers of the Republic were drafting the Declaration of Independence, the humble and saintly Sarah was founding the great city of San Francisco. Quote, How great, says a Western writer, are the changes in the womb of time. On the 27th of June, 1776, 100 years ago, San Francisco was become known in history. 
Father Sarah, whose name and deeds in California have secured the proudest niche in his history, whose monument should stand in the first place of our public square as a testimony of respect, landed at this place accompanied by a few settlers from Sonora. Quote, Look at that old presidio and that venerable mission of Dolores, and behold the first house erected. These are his handiwork. San Francisco has this at least to boost of that the first building erected within it was dedicated to God's worship under the patronage of St. Francis, unquote. The Venerable Sarah died during the summer of 1784 in the 71st year of his age, quote, and when the sun and all its state illumined the western skies, he passed through glorious morning gate and walked in paradise. Here's the great John Pepino on Father Sarah. Hello to our Institute of Catholic Culture family. Welcome, Dr. John Papino. Welcome back to the ICC. Hello, Father. Hello, everyone. Good to have you with us. You know, we're going to start a new series here with the Institute called Thank God I'm Catholic. Uh, and Dr. Papino, as our ICC historian, is going to help us uh, understand the, the many ways that uh, what, a lot of things we use today, a, a lot of things in our society, things, are rooted really in our Catholic faith and came to us through the church, the church which is, of course, under serious attack today in so many ways. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, recently we've seen a lot of rioting um, and uh, uh, racial fighting and so forth, all the looting and all the things going on. And a lot of that anger and frustration is being aimed at the church. And here I'm in California um, and St. Manipro Serra, who's a, a dearly beloved saint to me personally, his statues are being toppled and, uh, and, and terrible things taking place. I remember as a young man, as I began um, teaching catechism, I was teaching my first, my first opportunity to, to be a catechist was at the Carmel Mission. And the Carmel Mission is where St. Manipro Serra is buried. So I go and pray at his tomb before class. And I very much associate my vocation with and my, my calling to, as a catechist to his intercession. Um, but of course, uh, his, his reputation is in question. And we want to take this opportunity, doctor, to talk about the truth, not about what's being put out there on CNN, the History Channel, what's being promoted um, in, in, in modern media, but what is really the historical truth about St. Winifred Rosera? Right. Uh, is he an honorable man? Was he an honorable man? Is he a saint? Was he uh, <laughs> one who enslaved the Indians? What, 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 what do we know about him rather than what the, what's the media telling us? So, Doctor, I'm going to turn over to you now and ask you to, to kind of begin this journey with us. Okay. Saint Junipero Serra, he was uh, canonized in 2015 by Pope Francis, another um, Hispanic Catholic. Thank God. He was a Spaniard, not from mainland Spain. He was born in 1713 in one of the Balearic Islands in Mallorca, where they don't even speak Spanish. They speak Catalan. And his dad was a quarry worker. He really was from a working class family, but was very brilliant, became a Franciscan. By the time he was 24, he was a professor of theology. And he was known for two things. His brilliance, in intellectually, his ability to teach, and his great, great humility. And 
one of the things he always wanted to do was participate in the spreading of the gospel. He came to the New World, uh, Veracruz, Mexico, and ultimately, uh, through all sorts of twists and turns of history, including the suppression of the Jesuits, which opened up, a, which there was a kind of a vacuum which sucked in all the Franciscans, and that propelled him into Baja California, where the Jesuits had missions to take over those, and he did so well that he was then sent up into Alta California, also known as California, your home state father, where he founded uh, nine missions, and ultimately his, his successors will move it on, I think, to a total of 25 missions. And really there were two uh, coordinated ideas or, that led him. Number one, the love of Christ and his wish to share the gospel of Christ with, with as many people as possible, whether as a professor or a missionary. And number two, he really came to love the Indians as Indians, meaning the native, they call them Apaches. They were more than just Apaches, of course. They just called all the Indians Apaches from Texas, Arizona, into California. But of course, these were many different tribes. And throughout his correspondence, you see how much he loved these Indians for their souls, to, to bring Christ to them, but also even in their natural virtues, which he always praised and always sought to, um, to, to emphasize. And in fact, he said, sometimes these in, they have so many natural virtues, all they need is the transformation of grace, which they will receive in baptism. And when that happened, he said, they're more Christians than Europeans once that happens. He really loved them and he defended them. He shared in their difficulties. He wept for them. He was very close to them. And in, I think, Father, I mean, you, could, you can uh, tell me if I'm going too far, but it seems to me that in a sense, he could be called the patron saint of racial equality. This is might surprise people when you oh. see these statues being doubled. Yeah. yeah, you know, Doctor, what you're saying, what you're saying flies in the face of everything that's being told to us in the media today. And uh, of course, we at, at the Institute don't want to just be shouting, uh, you know, in back what they're shouting at us. We want to actually be able to share the truth. Um, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so we, 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 we are ultimately interested in truth as a, as a way, a pathway to communion with Christ. And you're saying that he loved Christ. You're saying he loved the Indians. But we're being told in the media that this is a man who enslaved people, which is, of course, uh, contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only that, he enslaved a, 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 a racial minority, if you will, uh, a, a less powerful people. And, uh, just completely opposite to what you're saying. He loved Christ, loved the Indians. Talk, talk to us. How do we know that? How do we know? Yeah, that? Well, okay, we know this in several ways. Now, we do have to engage the historical circumstances that when he went up into uh, what is today the state of California, there were indeed uh, Spanish soldiers with him, as well as Indian soldiers from Baja California who were already Christians. There's no doubt about that. And that there was a kind of agreement with the Viceroy of New Spain, and that the spreading of the gospel was concomitant with the spreading of Spanish administration. This is true. It's also true that when the Spaniards first arrived, there, was, there were different kinds of relations with the locals. Uh, sometimes peaceful, sometimes misunderstanding, and the Franciscans often acted to restrain the soldiers from revenge or from essentially helping themselves to things. All this is true. 
However, as the missions developed, you will find that fewer and fewer soldiers stay to the point even where these missions have zero soldiers or a nominal garrison nearby, which means then, and so that's one thing. Another thing is that these Spaniards were surrounded by a sea of indigenous populations, okay? But these three or four Franciscans per mission couldn't keep these people in, in chains. Well, well, there were no chains, but they couldn't keep them enslaved. The Indians could just walk away if they wanted to. No, no. What we have rather here is a collaboration of the Franciscans with divine grace and the Indians converting to form what really became a Christian commonwealth of Indians, which visitors, people like uh, Captain Vancouver, who had found Vancouver, an Englishman, he said, this is unbelievable. The, 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 how much bounty these converted Indians have been able to draw out of the ground with their Franciscan missionaries. So that's one thing. Also, as I said at the beginning, there were soldiers and there were, unfortunately, the sorts of things that soldiers do, particularly when they're far away from home. There were some rapes, there were some murders. And Father Serra, Junipero Serra, the saint, didn't just protest, okay? He didn't just say, oh, that's no good, you shouldn't do that. He took it upon him. Now, this is a man who, was, who had a limp, chronic gastritis and chronic bronchitis. He went all the way back to Mexico City and he said to the Viceroy, what they're doing to the Indians is intolerable, it must stop. And the Viceroy said, well, what are they doing? These things, these things. Well, write it up for me. And the saint drew up, it's called the, the Representacion. It's a 32 article document outlining the, the rights of the native populations as full human beings, as subjects to the crown on an equal footing with the Spanish. And he names them hijos de Dios, sons of God. And the point there is, this is pre-social Darwinism, pre-pseudo-scientific racism, which you'll see in the 19th century. This is still the medieval and truly Catholic approach that all men are descended of Adam and we are in fact all brothers. And we're entitled to the same uh, rights. And that is what he did for his Indians there in California. And it worked. And the proof of it is that the missions prospered. They did not fail. They only fell apart when after the independence of Mexico from Spain, a few years into that independence, an anti-clerical government took over, expelled the Franciscans, and then it fell apart. And at that point, the Indians were made vulnerable to the depredations of anyone, precisely because that protection provided by the truth, Catholicism, had been removed. Until then, it worked very well, and everyone commented on the work done. You know, so for that reason, I'd say he's the patron saint of racial equality, because he really didn't see things in terms of race. For him, there was just unbaptized, baptized. So you're saying that not only were, were the, the Native Americans not treated as slaves. They weren't even treated as second-class citizens. No, they're all citizens. Now, you will, however, this is to say that they were equal subjects to the crown in eighth, the 18th century, not in 21st century America. Okay, so they lived, so that's a big distinction you have to know. So for example, you will hear people say the Franciscans whipped the Indians. Okay, and what that evokes for us 
is uh, Kunta Kinte being whipped, you know, in roots, or that kind of thing. It wasn't like that at all. On the contrary, Junipero had obtained, through the representación, um, the fact that the Franciscans had governance over the missions, meaning that they policed, if you like, the missions. So that if crimes were committed, let's say one Indian stole some, the property of another Indian, or there was some sort of fisticuff, or God forbid there was some murder, okay, as happens in any society, rather than the, the Spanish cavalry determining what should happen, and I can guarantee you it would, it would have been pretty swift and unjust, it was the Franciscans who ran that. And, so, and at that time, theft, for example, was punished by flogging. Not just the Indians, anyone. And so what seems for us barbarous, and I'm not judging, maybe it is barbarous, is not to be understood as a means to control the Indians and enslave them, but rather as the kind of punishment like a fine today or imprisonment for us today. Now, they didn't have prisons and fines. That was the method of punishment. And so to point to the front, oh, look. And by the way, Father Sarah himself never flogged a soul in his life. But flogging was the normal punishment. Now, some historians have tried to rescue the Franciscans by saying, well, they considered the Indians to be their children, and so they spanked them, and it's like spanking. Okay. That's debatable. I think it's more of a, a, a policing punishment sort of thing. Uh, and that they did treat them as adults really in that sense. Um, and just as adults in, elsewhere in, in the Spanish empire might be flogged for stealing, so too were the, the locals there in, in California. Yeah. And uh, the proof I guess is in the pudding. Now, there's another thing that has to be addressed is the death rate. It would be glib to say that all the Indians died, because of course everyone dies. Which is why, by the way, when the LA Times says that underneath the mission cemetery grounds are the corpses of Indians, well, yes, it's a cemetery, my dear journalist, and in cemeteries you will find corpses. <laughs> and since this is a mission cemetery, the corpses are corpses of Indians. This is not like some pit in a concentration in a death camp. Okay, that's one thing. But the, the, it's true that there was a high mortality rate due to diseases which were unwittingly carried by the Spaniards. And so, yes, there, were high, there was a high, higher mortality, and that's just an unfortunate virological fact that the, the Europeans had on themselves viruses, they didn't know this, and the Indians caught them. But there was no genocidal uh, uh, intent here at all. So you will hear, Father, people say that they were, will, since 1946 already, those were concentration camps. You will hear people say this was genocidal. No. It was loving. It was well organized. And these missions were, as I said, a sort of a Christian commonwealth. Um, and the Indians, I mean, they stayed. They could all have walked away someday and didn't. There were, as you, I think you were telling me right before this segment that the original missions had no walls, right? Tell me what yeah, was that? Yeah, done a little research on this. Um, well, I grew up in California. And so, of course, in our, in our history courses, there's social studies, right, uh, courses, um, e even at the Catholic school, while we learned about the missions, we learned about St. Winnipero Serra. Uh, of course, he was not, saint, or not declared a saint canonized yet, but nevertheless. Um, but, but of course, weaved into all of that was, well, you know, but as a matter of fact, if you go, and we're going to pull the picture here, this 
you'll see now a depiction of the original mission of, of Carmel. There's no walls around it. So you see the missions today and these de highly developed things with these big thick walls and so forth. We have to realize that was not the original design. That was something that which took place over time as the mission became as what you exactly said is a, a, a prospering uh, a center for these people to, to, to do well, to, to, to feed their families, to learn and so forth. And, and therefore, of course, you want to be able to protect those, those places. And so, you know, I, I just, as we, as we come to a conclusion here, doctor, and feel free if there's anything else you want to add, but I want to uh, remind the, our participants in this short study that when something comes across in the media or in a book, uh, well, books are a form of media, but, you know, um, but uh, if, it, if it doesn't jive with your Catholic sense, you know, and we're given in baptism this unity with Christ. And if you're a practicing member of the church, you, you, know, you go to confession, receive Holy Communion and so forth, um, and something doesn't, doesn't sit well with you, I can pretty much guarantee you something's being, being proposed that is not accurate. When, you, when you're listening to the TV or listening to the radio or you're, you're watching, reading the newspaper and you come across this stuff, immediately, immediately you should have a sense that, hey, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Catholic. And one of, the, one of the really important things to me as a Catholic is telling the truth. The truth. Uh, the truth will set you free. And if, uh, the church is not in the business of lying to us. Huh? That's, that's, that's the case. And always look for the truth. Now, sometimes the truth can make us feel uncomfortable. Uh, but the truth is really the supreme thing. And, and um, Leo XIII, the, the great pope from the end of the 19th century, said that the Catholic historian should never be afraid of the truth. And always look for the truth. And as you say, I mean, these people who write about St. Junipero Serra, if you've seen any film come out of, of Hollywood, in which uh, the church is involved and you see how many mistakes they make, the vestments the priest wears, the habits that nuns wear, the language, you, you realize they don't know what they're talking about. The same applies to Catholic history. They, they don't quite know what they're talking about. So you have to verify uh, always and just don't, and tell your children, by the way, because they're, they're going to see this around and say, I mean, without accusing anyone of lying, you can at least say, well, they don't know what they're talking about. It isn't so. Yeah. I'm gonna just conclude with a picture here of what is maybe a little hard to discern. The location in Carmel, again, where St. Winnipeg Sarah is buried, in the middle of town, this is the location where his statue uh, always stood. And unfortunately, they have removed the statue. The other day, my cousin was driving by, and this is what he saw. It's a, a naked black mannequin that someone stuck in its place. Oh. And my brothers and sisters, we are under serious spiritual attack. Uh, let us be prepared to offer an explanation, a defense for what we believe, uh, those great men and women that have gone before us, and let us uh, always strive to walk in their footsteps. To Christ our God be glory, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Welcome, everybody. Steve with Sussfidelli. I'm coming at you with Christian Clifford out there in California. Uh, talk about who was St. Junipero Serra. I think I screwed that up again. 
But anyway, Christian loves to visit Catholic missions with his family. I'm reading from the MC guy, so I'm looking down. Uh, he especially enjoys learning about the founder of the First Nine Mission, St. Huniper Sarah. His, uh, this passion led him to write uh, the book, Making Sense of the History and Legacy. After his publication, he took his son's advice to write a book for children, recommending that it be called Who Was St. Huniper Sarah? Uh, the third book in his mission trilogy is Meet Pablo Tac. Tac. Indian from far shores of California. Uh, the story of the first California Mission Indian Seminarian currently is working on another book about his 782-mile walk in 45 days. Good googly moogly to the 21 mission uh, California missions. Uh, it's works titled The Pilgrimage in Search of the Real California Missions. His writings have appeared in Altea, California Teacher, Catholic Exchange, Catholic San Francisco, Catholic Standard, Crooks, uh, Pathios Philippine Daily Inquirer and today's Catholic teacher and Clifford has been a guest speaker on radio and to school church and service groups we can add the great channel of census fidelium now he's received a BA in social science from the University of Great Falls in Montana an MA in Catholic school teacher from the University of San Francisco he has been a teacher in the schools of the Archdiocese San Francisco since 1997 he lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with, with his wife and son and for more information Please visit his website at missions1796.com, which we'll include underneath in the web, on the show notes section. So, welcome, Dr. Clifford. Is Thanks, it Steve. It's not Dr. Ah, no. I'll, I'll no. promote you. Uh, Thanks. <laughs> Mr. Clifford, thank you for coming on. Uh, basically, the whole topic, if anybody's not been under a rock, the attacks on the statues, uh, St. Sarah and now St. King St. Louis. And I brought him on going, who else better to do than a guru on who is saint sarah so well thanks for having me steve it's great to be here with uh, your subscribers and you uh just a real quick uh side note it's missions 1769.com what i said yeah you said 1796 ah because, i'm dyslexic reason, sometimes <laughs> yeah me too um the reason that is is that 1769 is a year that St. Junipero Serra founded the first mission in what was then called Nueva California or New California, mm -hmm. uh, today the current state of California. He founded the first mission in San Diego. So last year was actually the uh, 250th commemoration of that event. And it was a really spectacular uh, remembrance of his courage coming here really into a world of the unknown to spread the gospel message. Wow. So is that the, the first Catholic in California was him? Not historically, because back in, um, I want to say about the mid 17th century, okay. uh, Sebastian Viscaino, who actually plays a very important part in the story of St. Junipero Serra. So Sebastian Viscaino was exploring for the King of Spain mm -hmm. and he, or the Empire of Spain, and he landed at Monterey, and he took notes, and it went into some archives somewhere in Madrid, and then what happened was, fast forward about a century and a half later, a century later, and the powers that be were getting word in Madrid that Britain and Russia kind of had the uh, California, well, we, let's just call it California, in their crosshairs, and they wanted to, you know, come here and 
get the natural resources and so on. Therefore, Spain took that out of the archives and said, hey, hold on. We, we, we've had some people out there. Let's get some uh, people out there to colonize it and evangelize to the local natives. And once they're baptized, they're automatically Spanish uh, citizens. And then we can um, tell their ambassadors from England, uh, Britain and uh, Russia, hey, hands off. This is our land, right? So that's really integral to the whole big picture. So the first mass was celebrated in Monterey by a few Carmelite priests who were with the Viscaino uh, exploration party. And so I, I'm sorry, but I forget the uh, exact date right now, but I wanna say the mid 17th century. That works. Yeah, I'm putting together this big series on how the religion uh, came to each state uh, the yeah. New Mexico and Colorado already. Uh, I need to hit Arizona now. California after going. This, you know, le learning about the missions, Saint Sarah. I didn't know about that with Vizcaino, so that's you know that's. Yeah. So, but with Saint Junipero Serra, it was you know very formal, uh -huh. le le you know, written down on paper. Let's go out and do this. That's why he's um, <clears throat> in certain circles. He's very controversial because uh, people bring up the question about was he an agent of the state or agent of the church. But really back then, the church and the state and the empire of Spain were really, really one. It was mm -hmm. hard to separate the two. But uh, Sarah, there's a lot of historical evidence where he really um, used words to fight back in, in actions to fight back, not violent actions, against the abuses by the government officials, especially the uh, soldiers, the soldiers. Yeah, because uh, I remember a story of there was a let's say like the the soldiers over here and his missions way over here to kind of be separate from them. Because that's, right. that's that's pretty pretty historically accurate. Yep. Yeah, cause just like the you know, people hear about the they condemn Cortez to the fifth limb or hell for yeah. just being him. And yes. yes, if you're away from the motherland, you're going to have some bad apples in the bushels. Yeah. yeah. But you know, with Cortez, uh, I don't want to go on a, up on a tangent. Right. Uh, but he had Indian allies. I mean, the Aztecs were despised, and they were empire mongers. And right. uh, just like here, when uh, Portola, who was the uh, head honcho for the government soldier, uh, along with Sarah, they, historians have called it the sacred expedition. Mm -hmm. And um, the the idea is. They, they brought uh, Indian allied troops with him and, and workers. Mm -hmm. And then even here, when the uh, Indians uh, became Christians, they had auxiliary units uh, to go out and you know protect the missions, uh, sometimes to go out and seek uh, native Christians who had left the missions. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's also a really an area of controversy. Even though we don't see it a lot during Sarah's time, but after his time, when the crops were low, the economy was sinking, sometimes you'd have uh, neophytes or Christian Indians who would say, hey, I'd like to go home and visit my family. And, you know, they basically come to an agreement like, okay, sure, go ahead, two weeks, you know, we'll see you in two weeks. Mm -hmm. But some remained and they would uh, go out and they'd try to compel them through reason first, hey, come on back and and so on. But there are some examples where uh, soldiers, including Indian uh, auxiliary units, would, would, would get these guys by force and take them back. 
And the fear was from the church's perspective that they would, uh, if they remained, they'd backslide to their uh, previous belief systems and ways of life. And of course, what was paramount to Sarah and the friars was the state of their soul. So uh, for people that are uh, angry at religion, irreligious, um, they might have a, a difficulty understanding that, you know, um, or people that don't even believe in another life or even the, the soul, mm -hmm. they might have difficulty with that, but that was the case. And you can't historically change that, you know? Right. Uh, and of course we as, as baptized Christians are compelled to be invitational to people, uh, to recognize that they have a soul and that this life is temporary. So tell did he, Target California. I want to say Target. Did he seek out California personally, or was no, no, his whole vocation? So back in Mallorca, Spain, where he was from, mm -hmm. he became a Franciscan. He was brilliant. Uh, he was a, a professor of sacred theology and philosophy, and um, the word got out in the Franciscan circles in Spain. They were basically recruiting for priests to come to the new world or new Spain mm -hmm. to uh, evangelize to the native peoples. And um, when St. Hudipro Serra got wind of that, he, he really always felt a calling to evangelize. So what he ended up doing was they accepted his application. He said bye to his family. He said bye to his pretty good job as a professor. And he got on a ship, went to Mexico City, and he ended up there for about 19 years in that section, central Mexico, evangelizing Indians who had already been baptized, but they're kind of lapsed or they didn't have a, a religious presence 24-7. Um, and so it took him another 19, 20 years to actually accomplish what his, his calling really was, and that was to evangelize people that never heard the gospel. And um, it was all very um, planned out by the powers that be in Mexico City and in Madrid to make this a joint venture between church and state to, like I said, come here before the British and the Russians they feared did. Um, so he didn't, he didn't plan it out, but he was invited to do it and he responded with a resounding yes. How successful was he? Uh, obviously, the end point was success. How was he at the beginning? Did it take years? Uh... It did. It did. It, it, it was uh, frustrating to him. There's evidence that it was frustrating, but also very joyful. Mm -hmm. So um, it was slowly but surely. You know, some historians make a correlation between the story of, you know, the first Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. and, you know, with the pilgrims and the uh, natives back east. And really what happened here, if it weren't for, the argument is, if it weren't for the natives helping out the Spanish early on, it would have failed miserably. So that's another thing where these people that are saying, tear down this statue, he's a genocidal maniac, the missions were concentration camps. It's like, wait, hold on. There, out of 142 Franciscan missionaries that served in what we call California today, the missions, eventually 21, two were martyred. 
and only two. So, and they only had like five guards at every mission, Spanish guards to protect them. Mm -hmm. So if things were that bad, it's easy to jump to the conclusion that, oh, they could have been slaughtered overnight, just slaughtered. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think the track record's pretty good that it was slow, but thanks to the natives uh, along the coast and their graciousness and their um, willingness to kind of say, hey, who are these guys? What are they about? They're hungry, let's feed them. Um, yeah, it would have failed, failed miserably. But in the big picture, things did pick up. Uh, more and more natives for different reasons do come to the missions. Uh, some of the reasons are curiosity for to listen to actually the gospel and respond to the gospel. Mm -hmm. uh, the new way of life was a great incentive as well as three square meals a day. You know, the, the native Californians were foraging their hunter gatherers and, and oftentimes they're foraging for a vast majority of the day. So when they came into the mission life is a very different way of life, but they were working on average six to eight hours a day. Mm -hmm. So I don't know about you, but uh, with our modern system, six to eight hours a day sounds pretty good. <laughs> they're, they're basically, um, communes what you what you grew mm -hmm. you 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 ate and uh and used and so on um and then there's also examples of when there's a drought in, at one mission in one area because trust me after having walked 782 miles between the 21 missions it is a vast vast state california and um so in one area you could have a mission or two have an impact by drought and their crops are being impacted. So they would ask another mission where there was no drought and there's a surplus to help them out. There's a, a lot of evidence of that. How, how far away are these missions? Are they almost like the exact same distance no, apart? No, they're, they're not. Um, so I think it's a legend that they were, you know, a day's walk apart okay. or a day's, uh, a two days walk apart, a day's horseback ride apart. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that's more legend than anything. Um, there were, there are two, let me get this. There were two points that were like 55 to 60 miles apart. And then there were two other ones that were a day, day apart for me. Mm -hmm. um, about 18 miles apart. So, so there, the spacing, it, it does differ. It, it was very practical why they put missions where they did mm -hmm. water, ah. water sources. And of course, what you brought up earlier, yeah, the proximity to presidios or Spanish for fort, um, like at Carmel, uh, right outside of Monterey is where the shrine of St. Junipero Serra is. And the original mission was, at what is today the uh, Presidio Chapel, also known as the Cathedral of San Carlos Borromeo, mm -hmm. which is the cathedral of the Diocese of Monterey in California. And it's also the oldest, I think it's, oh no, it's the smallest cathedral in the United States, huh. Catholic. Um, but anyways, that's where the original mission was. And like you said, the proximity to the soldiers became an issue. Um, <clears throat> Therefore, San Junipero Serra said, hey, we're going to take it another, I think it's about five or seven miles in, in near the Carmel River 
because it's a better source and it's a, it's further away from the Presidio. What kind of tactics did he use to help evangelize the Indians and the natives there? That's a good question. The tactics that he used. He came to Mexico or New Spain when he was in his 50s. Oh, wow. And he was brilliant, like I said, and he wanted to learn the language of the native peoples that he was uh, dealing with. But the uh, historical evidence that I encountered is that he tried, but to no avail. Therefore, like at uh, Mission Carmel or Mission San Carlos Borromeo that I just referred to, um, it's popularly known as Mission Carmel. There were, I think, three different uh, linguistic groups among the natives there, and they didn't all agree with each other. They had past histories and so on. Therefore, uh, Spanish was used as the unifying uh, language, just like uh, the argument was, um, you know, for Latin, you know, for most of our church's history, right? It would unify and lessen confusion mm -hmm. universally or around the world. So he, the tactic was he taught them just like uh, you would back in Spain. He taught that the, they learned the rudiments of the faith. The adults who are uh, converting in the process of converting, I guess they're like ancient RCIA program. Um, they had to learn the rudiments of the faith before accepting baptism. So this idea of first forced conversion is, is, is really a, a historical record does not prove that to be true at all. It was invitational. Mm -hmm. So initially point of contact, uh, very customary to you know, give them gifts, beads, things like that. So that the next step would be curiosity, asking questions, maybe through an interpreter of some sort mm -hmm. who came from uh, Baja California, the, the natives there who converted and came with them. Uh, but then once things got settled down in the uh, missions and they started to get built uh, by the Indians um, mainly, um, then the rudiments of the faith would be taught before conversion, uh, before baptism. The infants uh, could be baptized automatically. Uh, again, with yeah, infants uh, automatic, on the request of the parents. Uh, what were the people like before their conversion? Were, I mean, were they kind of like the Aztecs? Were they not? Were they uh, multiple marriages? How yeah. So there are so many different native groups here in California that it's really difficult to generalize. But I can tell you this based on your question, they weren't like the Aztecs. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the, the work that's been done is that many different language groups that they had difficulties with each other and they had not tribes, but tribelets. Mm -hmm. So you have like communities of like 50, uh, 75, what the Spanish called in their writings, rancherias, mm -hmm. rancherias. And they would usually have a, like a, head of the community and um but the big thing in terms of war that they did is there's mainly based on revenge so like uh you do me wrong i'm gonna get you back so well what's the uh growing up you know hey uh it's not christian to um 
um, to to uh, go after the other for their wrongs, uh-huh. you know. Um, we got to learn how to forgive. So that was uh, a, a real cultural shift too, and the belief system to learn to forgive uh, the Christian way. So, um, yeah, that that was basically you know they they were hunter gatherers like I said. If they were along the coast, they were fishermen too. Mm-hmm. Um, they really learned the uh, the environment and made use of the environment as challenging as that was, but. Um, they weren't used to the idea of, you know, settling down. So when the missions came in that system, uh, this idea of settling down was difficult. Also, uh, in terms of uh, sexuality, you know, sex was not to be crass, but it was just something to do, mm-hmm. you know? And um, there were examples of uh, in certain tribeless where uh, one, would dress up as a girl if there was you know multiple sons there weren't a lot of girls and then of course um that whole area of sexuality was found in the missions too there you are just got your back um what else he was all right. He was fifty when he got there. How many years did it take him to get? What was it nine missions that he started? That's right. And he wanted more. He wanted a lot more. But he he the um, governor would take it back to the viceroy, and they're just like, go sell crazy somewhere else. We don't have the manpower. We don't have the resources. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he was very zealous. He he said, hey, there's more souls to be saved. We can do this because it did become somewhat successful. You know, the long range impact of Sarah, uh, he founded the first nine and then his predecessor, uh, Father Fermin Lesuen, he is a Franciscan from the uh, Basque country of Spain. He would found the next nine. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there are about two or three other their predecessors who founded the remaining uh, ones. Uh, the last one was actually founded under the um, Mexican government, when California became a part of Mexico, the Mission Sonoma, or as popularly known as Mission Sonoma, but it's uh, known as Mission Francisco uh, Solano, is this formal name. And that was founded under the uh, Mexican occupation here in California. But um, the 101,000 baptisms were recorded. And that, and that's in basically the roughly 50 year span that Spain was here in California. Wow. 101,000. And it's also noteworthy for your uh, viewers that uh, the majority of California native uh, peoples never even came into contact with the Spanish. The Spanish area of influence or sphere of influence was basically from Sonoma, north of San Francisco, in the 1820s to all the way to San Diego. Mm-hmm. And it was from the coastline to about 25 to 50 miles inland. That was it. Mm-hmm. So roughly, uh, what I say, like, as a crow flies, 600 miles by 50 miles, 25 to 50 miles. That was, and, and, and there's a lot more state left. Yeah. And there are a lot more natives in California. Uh, most guesstimates are about 
350,000, 400,000 natives uh, pre-contact, uh -huh. pre-contact. So uh, 101,000, and as you uh, are probably aware, uh, a good majority of them um, lost their lives because of the disease, uh -huh. the foreign disease. And uh, that's a really significant point. And that's where a lot of the anger comes from uh, with these activists is that their, their people did lose a lot of their cultural ways. And uh, a lot of them lost their lives. But the big question is, was it St. Junipero Serra's intent? And the historical record is really clear that he was motivated, motivated by the gospel to save souls in that it's hard for me to believe, but there's some people out there that think that the modern medicine we have has always existed. <laughs> there's actually an example, and this one comes up from um, a gentleman uh, who is the curator. His name escapes me now. Uh, forgive me on this. But he's a curator of the uh, Mission Dolores or Mission San Francisco DSC's uh, mission in the city and county of San Francisco. And he is a native Californian and he's Catholic. And in a few interviews that he did, he brought this up. Um, he said, hey, these guys had limited knowledge of the world. When some young babies were getting sick around Junipero Serra, he wrote to the powers, the experts in uh, Mexico City, the doctors at the time, what do I do? They're getting sick. Here, this is what is going on. And about a year later, he got a response because mail was very slow back then. And they said, give them more milk. Well, lo and behold, the experts told him to do that. Well, some hundred years later, we learned that the Ohlone Indians, who are the main uh, uh, native peoples at Mission Dolores in San Francisco, were lactose intolerant. So, I mean, they could only do what they could do with what they had and what they knew. Right. Contrast that with, uh, if you read anybody reads the story of Father DeSchmidt, when he finds out that the state is literally giving the Indians whiskey, knowing that they're oh, going to tear each other apart and yeah, sit back and watch him do it. Yeah, up there in Montana, he's a great guy. Yeah. He, now, to, uh, as you shared with your uh, viewers, um, the University of Great Falls, it's now it's now called um, the University of Providence. It's uh, It was founded by the Providence Sisters, or Sisters of Providence really? at Montreal back in the 1930s. But uh, they did change the name after I graduated. Um, and I took a uh, Native American history class and cultures class, cultures and traditions, while there because in Montana, uh, there's a, a very uh, large population of Native Americans. And um, I learned a lot about Father DeSmit. And he, he's a great guy. He should be up for uh, canonization. Yes. You know? I love it. I know of a couple of seminarians that became priests because of his, just because of reading his book or the book really? on him. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. But it goes into all this because he was the first statue I heard of Catholic wise to get moved out of St. Louis University. And they oh, put really? it up in the uh, the museum. So if anybody goes to St. Louis, uh, go to the museum. He's on the it's the Jesuit museum on the third floor. It's free to entry. 
literally nobody goes to it. It's right across the street from the library. And there's the statue of Father DeSmith up there with his hand cross up there and hand over the Indian that he's converting. Oh, that sounds great. I'd love to see that visit there. It's a cool, it's a cool one. Yes. Um, well, Sarah saying Sarah, all right, he's, he, I'm sure he wasn't by himself during those nine, but it wasn't like he had an army of priests, right? No, no. Um, there are a lot of times, ideally they wanted two, two mm -hmm. priests per mission. And what happened was, you know, they, they'd go on these recruiting tours, uh, the, the, the leaders of the Franciscans in Mexico City would go to Spain and try to recruit. And sometimes they had uh, a good response, other times they didn't. Um, but ideally two, because of loneliness. Hmm. I mean, working alone was very difficult for these guys. And sometimes they were left alone uh, because the other guy either uh, retired or couldn't hack it and then and, and went back. And, um, but it was a very difficult uh, a lot of sacrifice for these guys. And, you know, sometimes they had two there and they hated each other. You know, they had difficulty just getting along with each other. I shouldn't say hate. They're Franciscans. Really dislike. Uh, they're, they're priests. <laughs> yeah, they really disliked, you know. They, yeah. they had their own foibles and quirks. They're and human. Uh, but for the most part, I think the majority of the time, they were able to staff it with two. Mm -hmm. And some were um, use their gifts and talents like uh, sit jar at um, – Mission San, San Antonio de Padua, which is my favorite um, mission. It's, it's when you go there, it almost feels like you're stepping back in time with the land, the building. It's basically what these guys like San Juan de Brosera experience, you know, walking through there. Um, it's very isolated and remote. But um, he's Sitjar learned the language of the people, wrote a catechism in the local language for them. Uh, then you have uh, the priest who, uh, his name's escaping me right now, but at Mission uh, San Juan Batista, which is kind of south of San Jose. He was a great gifted musician. And he, they had the greatest choir there of native musicians playing. So um, ideally too, these guys really sacrificed a lot. They used their gifts and talents in the way they knew how, and some were bad. So a couple of them, you know, uh, were, were accused of doing some uh, kind of nasty things. But I would, I, would, I would say they were the exception to the rule, mm -hmm. just like what's going on in our church today with our faith-filled priests, our holy priests. Uh, some are ruining uh, the reputation of the ministry of priesthood you know, and it's really unfortunate. And I think that uh, in a lot of these books, you know, I've read them. I know the arguments of those who accuse the uh, mission system and St. Junipero Serra. I know their arguments very well. And they seem to take uh, certain things out of context and really run with it. And, uh, and it's really important to note that History is complex. It's not so black and white, but to cherry pick information to paint a you know a broad picture with broad strokes is really dishonest. It's just really dishonest. Yeah, I remember there's a great line: "You're entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts." Yeah, that's right. That's right. Did uh, Saint Sarah? Did uh, 
was he traveling to all those nine when yeah two at each station was he traveling constantly to it yeah so he was headquartered in uh monitor or carmel mission carmel and what would he do is periodically he'd go and visit the different missions to to check up on people but the big reason why he ventured out was for confirmation so we didn't here we didn't have or he didn't have a bishop only bishops supposed to uh, perform the sacrament of confirmation so he got a dispensation from the holy see or the pope to to do it so after a certain amount of time uh the, the population rose he did go out there to every single mission to perform uh the sacrament of reconciliation and it is kind of a legend that he walked the entire time, but the reality is they walked a lot, but they also had mules and horses. Uh, sometimes they would venture out on their own to make house calls, basically. Uh, other times they would have a guard, probably just a guard, mm-hmm. to, to uh, act as security. And, um, you know, he went all the way to Mexico City very early on to defend the rights of the natives because of the egregious behavior of some of the soldiers, Mm -hmm. because he's like, Hey, Viceroy, who is the King's representative in in the new world or new Spain. How can we bring people to Christ? If we have supposed Catholic Christians who are acting in such uh, horrible uh, ways. Mm -hmm. So again, distance with the uh, Presidio, and the soldiers, and he went there and basically um, every single one except for two of his points that he had a problem with, including um, how the natives were being treated, were met, were met by the viceroy. He agreed with him. So uh, Archbishop Gomez, who is a great uh, defender of the reputation, the holiness of St. Junipero Serra, He's the Archbishop of Los, the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, um, is quick to point out what he refers to as the Native Bill of Rights. So this is, uh, you can make a strong argument, I would say, that Sarah was way ahead of his time, way ahead of his time, right? Because uh, so many look down upon the Natives mm-hmm. as less than. Um, the, the society not just uh, British, but Spanish as well, uh, very stratified, you know, like uh, you had um, the Peninsulares who were uh, from Spain, and then you had the Mestizo who were uh, intermarried, which is a very beautiful thing to come across when studying California mission history. And that is, you had a lot of intermarriages between uh, native and Spaniard. That's a beautiful thing about our faith, right? Yeah, it's like the San Patricios. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of Irish in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. You, that's a beautiful thing about our faith. You marry, you marry for love, not money or uh, some status. You know, they were supposed to be, right? Yeah. Yeah, I I feel like I didn't do due diligence if I didn't say like uh, when Columbus came over and went back over, Queen Isabella wrote a beautiful letter about protection and caring for the natives as if they are our own children that we yes. have to educate them and bring them to the trueness of the faith and 
Treat yes. them just like us. That's right. That's right. Uh, but it's really important to note, too, that, um, you know, you had these systems in place when Sarah was here, and he was well aware of them, mm -hmm. that um, the conquistadors were given lands for their service, and they didn't have labor. So they basically did enslave mm -hmm. uh, local peoples. And um, what happens is Sarah was aware of that history. He condemned it. And um, he learned from it because how can you make true Catholic Christians out of people that are forced to believe something against their will? So <laughs> kind of go, goes against all the church teaching right there. That's right. <laughs> and in conscience, right? Uh, this, the primacy of conscience. But the thing is that you had, um, what you have is, Las Casas, Bartolome de Las Casas, right? Mm -hmm. He was a slaveholder who eventually became a priest and a bishop. And he wrote these books that were took Spain by storm. And it's, it's about the enslavement of the native peoples by supposed Catholics. So what happened is uh, he used a lot of hyperbole in his writing. Mm -hmm. And um, when the Protestant Reformation occurred with the printing press, the uh, places like uh, the Low Countries, Holland, Belgium, that was basically uh, ruled by Spain at the time, there were uh, movements afoot to get Spain out because these guys converted to Protestant Christianity and they used the printing press in Las Casas' own writings against Spain. You guys are monsters. You're evil, you're, you know, all this stuff. So it's a really interesting thing. So what's going on in Spain intellectually, um, it had trouble carrying over in, in terms of practicality here. Mm -hmm. But by the time in California with St. Hudo Procera, you didn't have those systems in place. It was really like a uh, uh, un, unpainted canvas, you know, uh, from the, the Span Spanish perspective. Final question, uh, some, give us something that we probably don't know about St. Sarah, but it's really cool to know of him. Like, uh, you know, that was, I don't know, quirks, oh, I tits. Couple, I have a couple things. Um, one, he was only five foot two. He was, you know, people were much shorter back then. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know that. Even back in, uh, I, I remember going to a um, wedding reception uh, as a wedding rehearsal reception at a uh, place in New Jersey. And it was like an old um, converted inn. And now it's a restaurant. And I, I'd, I'm only 5'11", and I had to put my head down to get into the room to go eat because people were just shorter back then. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, these guys are bullying a five foot two guy who left Spain to bring the gospel message to, to total strangers. Yeah. <laughs> Secondly, he loves snuff and chocolate. So snuff, of course, is really not uh, popular anymore. It's not like chewing tobacco or anything, but uh, it was for the nasal, mm -hmm. is the nasal thing. And um, it kind of clear it up real quick. And I think it is tobacco-based. And he, and he really loved chocolate. And we know that because he wrote it in a letter um, when he was in Puerto Rico. So when he came to uh, the New World, or new, um, 
New Spain. He came by uh, Puerto Rico. He was there for a few weeks uh, doing, um, uh, you know, get, say, what would you say? Uh, having like uh, tent revivals, I guess. I forget the name that we Catholics use, but like a tent revival, uh -huh. you know, for the Catholics that live there. So those are a few things I, I think that people would be kind of, he was a man. He, he was a man of his time in, in many ways. However, he also went above and beyond, I think, his, what he was, what was called of him. And there's a line from a, a, a scholarly article, an academic article, by uh, a guy by the name of James Sandoz, who's not the biggest fan, uh, I think, I can read between the lines of the Catholic Church and so on, but he's a, he's a pretty honest scholar. And in, in this article, he wrote, quote, Junipero Serra loved the Indians, end quote. That's good enough right there. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it, people that devote their lives to, to studying and writing about this. I don't hear too many negative things about Junipero Serra from, the, from them. So why is it in our popular culture that this is fermenting and it's out there on the web and it's really making... Uh, some people angry. Mm -hmm. When did he die? How old was he? And when's his feast day? He uh, died in 1784. And uh, he was in his, he was 70 years old. Mm -hmm. And his feast day is July 1st. Mm -hmm. And he's the patron saint of vocations. So I don't know if uh, any of your viewers are um, maybe Knights of Columbus mm -hmm. members. They're really great about vocations uh, to the priesthood and religious life, but also the Sarah Club. Hopefully uh, some of your viewers can look into the Sarah Club named after him in the 1930s, our own uh, St. Junipero Sarah. And their whole mission is about vocations to the priesthood and religious life. So maybe uh, your viewers can do some uh, research and investigation and see if maybe they're called to uh, become members of the Sarah Club or the Knights of Columbus. Very good. Well, that's Christian Clifford, uh, the book, Who, who Was St. Universe, Universe Sarah? For our English-speaking people. <laughs> it's the website mission1769.com. i got it right this time. Uh, everything will be underneath in the show notes. Get the book. Uh, I'm sure there's some prayer cards somewhere. Do we know of any? There's prayer cards out there through the Knights of Columbus and uh, Sarah International. They have prayer cards available. Yep, online. Very good. Well, I appreciate your time and scholarship on this. And uh, hopefully everyone will buy the book and learn more about them. And maybe pass it on to somebody who's wanting to tear down a statue. Yay. Thanks, Steve. God Thanks, bless. Everybody. Thanks. From the book American Martyrs from 1542, the proto-martyr for California, Father Luis Jaime, Franciscan, 1775. When news of the martyrdom of Father Luis Jaime at San Diego reached Father Sarah in San Carlos' mission to the north, the founder of the California missions exclaimed, quote, Thanks be to God, the land is now watered. Now the conversation of the Diaguenos will be accomplished. Father Luis Jaime was born on the island of Majorca, Spain, October 18, 1740, and was baptized Melchior. He entered the Franciscans in Palma in 1760 
adopting the religious name of Luis. He taught philosophy for several years and in 1770 left Spain for America. In October of that same year, he departed from the Franciscan College in Mexico City with nine other friars and arrived in Monterey on May 21, 1771. There, Father Sara assigned him to San Diego, the first mission the veteran Sara had founded in 1769. Father Jaime proposed to move the San Diego mission from the vicinity of the Presidio, the Old Town, to a nearby valley where it is presently situated. Father Sarah approved the change and Father Jaime began construction of the new building affecting the transfer in August 1774. Conversion work was slow but steady. The San Diego Indians were of human stock and not as adaptable as other California tribes. The medicine men of the tribe exerted strong influence, realizing that their position was jeopardized by the priest. Nevertheless, at the same time of his death, Father Jaime counted 431 baptized Indians. Some of the Indians warned Father Jaime and his assistant, Father Vicente Fuster, that the medicine men were stirring up trouble, but the missioners were not alarmed since the shamans had always been hostile. Late on the night of November 5, 1775, hundreds of pagan Indians gathered around the mission. Father Jaime went out to meet them, giving the usual mission greeting, quote, Love God, my children. Some Indians attacked him, dragging him off to a nearby arroyo, where he was clubbed to death and his body pierced with arrows. They also killed a Spanish blacksmith and a carpenter. They set fire to some mission buildings, ransacking their contents. By this time, Spanish soldiers appeared and eventually drove off the raiders. Father Jaime's remains, hardly recognizable, were found the next morning. Father Fuster reported of the body, quote, There was not a sound spot on it except for his innocent hands. Father Fuster buried his pastor's remains in the Presidio Chapel, and later they were transferred to the reconstructed mission. They rest today in the restored mission church, and the site of the martyrdom is marked by a cross. Conversion increased rapidly after the martyrdom, proving Father Sarah's prophecy and illustrating once again the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christianity. Father Juan Marcelo Diaz, Franciscan, 1781. Father Jose Matias Moreno, Franciscan. Father Francesco Garces, Franciscan. Father Juan Antonio Barenche, in establishing their California missions, the Franciscans followed the Jesuit system of reductions. That is, they removed their permanent missions from the vicinity of Spanish settlements and presidios. They realized that Spanish soldiers and settlers did not always give good example, in many cases abusing the Indians and trying to make serfs of them. The Franciscans built their own self-sufficient worlds in an attempt to create ideal situations in which new converts may live and grow in their new faith. However, when new missions were to be established among the Yuma Indians in southeastern California along the Colorado River, the Spanish ruled that the missions must be part of the Spanish settlements, that the Indians must live side by side with the colonists, and that the missioners would confine themselves to ritual preaching, saying mass, and administering the sacraments. The Franciscans protested, but to no avail. The result was that they had feared. The Spaniards moved in on Indian lands and abused the native inhabitants. The Indians, in turn, developed a hatred for the intruders and their religion. This came to a head when the commander arrested the Indian chief, Palma, and placed him in stocks. The Indians rose in a rebellion and took the lives of four priests listed above. Fathers, Juan Diaz and Jose Moreno were stationed at Mission San Pedro and San Paulo de Buchuner, which was located in 
on the Colorado about three miles north of Fort Yuma. Valadez had been born in Alcazar de San Juan in Seville, Spain in 1736. He entered the Franciscans at 18 and after ordination, volunteered for the American missions, arriving in Mexico in 1763. After the Jesuits had been expelled from their missions, he went to work along the Pima Indians, where he had a considerable success in conversions. He was one of the small group of Spaniards who pioneered an overland route from Mexico to San Diego. He began the mission San Pedro and San Paulo, full of misgivings at the newly imposed system of colonization. Father Moreno, born in Almoraza, Spain, joined the Franciscans in Borges in 1762. He was assigned to the Franciscan Missionary College in Mexico and from there to Sorona. When the missions of, among the Yumas was established, he was chosen to assist Father Diaz. The two other murdered Franciscans were stationed at Mission Purisima Concepcion. Father Francisco Garces was an extraordinary minister, min, missioner who had been compared to the great Jesuit missioner Father Quino. He was born in Aragon, Spain in 1738 and received his early education from an uncle who was a priest. He entered the Franciscans at the age of 15 and was ordained 10 years later. He volunteered for the Indian missions and arrived in Mexico in 1766, serving his time as a confessor. He was assigned to the now famous mission of San Xavier del Bachner, Tucson, Arizona, where he won a reputation for his spiritual ministrations and his explorations in uncharted areas of California and Arizona. In 1768, he traveled among the tribes along the Gila River, and the following year he entered the country of the Apaches. In 1771, he followed the Colorado River to its north. He was the first to reach the Grand Canyon from the west and the first to give it a specific name, other than the name of the river flowing through it. The historian Herbert E. Bolton has called Garces intrepid, heroic, and fearless. However, not all was exploration. When he learned that an epidemic was broken out in the Gila region, he hastened there, baptized as many dying children as he could. He chronicled his journeys, more than 5,000 miles by foot, and sent the reports on to the authorities. On one of his journeys, one of 11 months, he had made friends with the Yuma Indians and Chief Palma, who would later be put in stocks, asked for missioners. When it was decided that settlements should be made among the Yumas, it was natural that he should be chosen to lead the Franciscans. With Father Garces at Parisima Concepcion was Father Baranche, born in 1749 in Spain. He had gone to the employ of the merchant of Havana, Cuba as a teenager. When he was 19, he joined the Franciscans in Havana and was sent to the college in Mexico for his studies. Ordained there around 1776, a man of deep religious spirit and entirely unworldly, he was chosen to assist Father Garces in working among the Yumas. In a letter back to Mexico, Father Garces highly praised the zeal of his, of his confrere, referring to him as another St. Patrick. The revolt by the Yumas against the Spaniards began on July 19, 1781. Valles Diaz and Moreno died on that day, beaten to death by clubs. When the bodies were recovered five months later, evidence pointed to the fact that Father Moreno had also been decapitated. Father Garces and Baranche survived the first two days, hearing the confessions of dying Spaniards. They took refuge among some Christian Indians, and Chief Palma had put out word that they were not to be harmed. However, on the morning of July 19, 
They were discovered by a pagan Indian who summoned others and they were beaten to death. When the bodies of all four men were recovered, they were moved to the college for final burial. Father Andres Quintana, Franciscan 1812, was born in Spain in 1777. He entered the Franciscan order at the age of 17 in the province of Cantabria, where he was ordained. On April 26, 1804, he set sail from Cadiz for Mexico, where he volunteered for the California missions. Arriving at Monterey at the end of August the following year, he was assigned to Santa Cruz, where he was to labor until his death in 1812, although he occasionally helped out at San Juan Bautista when the resident priest was away. On October 12, 1812, he was found dead in his bed. Since he had been ill, the death was attributed to natural causes, and he was buried. About two years later, some Indians were heard speaking about Quintana being murdered. This was reported to the authorities and an investigation was made. Eight Indians were arrested. They admitted their guilt, saying that the priest had been harsh with them. During the night, they had fiend a, a sick call, and Father Quintana, though ill himself, answered it. Once away from the mission, they killed him, quote, in the most revolting, diabolical manner. After the priest was dead, they brought him back and laid him in his bed. The body was exhumed and examined by a surgeon and the murderer established. A fellow missioner, Father Narcisco Duran, in writing to his superior in 1814, declared that the missions, quote, murdered him in so barbarous a manner that I doubt if such cruelty had ever been resorted to in the most barbarous nations, for they tortured him and suffocate him at the same time. Governor Pablo Sola conducted a careful inquiry of the matter and wrote that instead of being harsh, quote, this good father went to excess, not in punishing his Indians, but in the love in which he regarded them. He called Father Quintana, quote, a very pious missioner who, while seriously ill himself, responded to the call of ministry, quote, which was the cause of his premature death. The governor referred to the case to the viceroy, and the murderers were punished with imprisonment. Years later, an English writer, Sir George Simpson, accused Father Quintana of immorality in his narrative and gave that the reason for his death. However, this is put down as unfounded gossip and was never claimed by the Indian murderers in the defense of the trial. Father Bezos, a Capuchin in 1872, a Spanish missioner, established the Capuchin mission in Guatemala, where he was superior. In 1872, the anti-clerical revolutionary government expelled all foreign missionaries from Guatemala. Father was arrested along with 38 other Capuchins in the region of Antigua, the old capital. They were forced to journey 200 miles to the coast where, on June 16th, they were put aboard a ship bound for San Francisco. Father had fallen ill in the hardships he had to endure during the expulsion. The ship reached San Francisco on July 1st and Father went ashore. He died three days later on July 4th from the cruel effects of his banishment. Since he died in San Francisco, he's considered a martyr of the United States. Father Patrick Haslin in 1921. He was killed simply because he was a priest. Father was attached to the Archdiocese of San Francisco and was the brother of Bishop Thomas Pericoma only two weeks before his death. On the evening of August 2nd, 1921, a seedy looking man approached Father and asked if a priest could go with him to a friend who was dying. Father went with the man and was never seen alive again. Archbishop Edward Hanna, head of the San Francisco Archdiocese, received a letter demanding that he bring ransom for Father Heslin and warning the Archbishop not to be accompanied by any, quote, damn knights, Knights of Columbus, and not to make the letter public 
as it would be, quote, easy to trap a bunch of imposters. Several days later, Fowler's body was found in a shallow grave on the beach of San Mateo. The man who led the police to the body, William Hightower, was arrested and convicted of the murder. The police considered the crime an act of anti-Catholic violence. There was no legitimate sick call and father was killed because he exercised his priestly ministry.